Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of In Lockdown With It With Me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the playwright, actor, drag queen, Alan Saunders. Hi Alan, how's it going? I, uh, <laughs> I'm alright, uh, I'm alright, uh, none of those things. I'm, I think I'm just a dad now, like nothing else. <laughs> so... <laughs> It, is, it has been a difficult time, though. I mean, we spoke about this briefly before we started. It has been a difficult time creatively to just see the light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Oh, uh, totally. Yeah, I think the more people I speak to, we are... I think we're um, increasingly and constantly sort of finding a balance between being grateful for what we've got but also <laughs> grieving what we've lost or at, at risk of losing and just kind of just trying to keep checking in with people and go, are you okay? You doing all right? Yeah. How are you doing? Good. And, you know, just making sure that people don't have to say they're fine all the time because things aren't fine. Things are really, really hard yeah. <laughs> right now. And, and they have been for the majority of the last year. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. But I think people people say, oh, I'm fine, I'm just getting on with it. And you just sometimes need to check up on people. Yeah, and be totally. like, are you really okay? What kind yeah. of thing. Just that. I did it this morning, sent my friend Catherine a message. I was like, you okay? I really miss... I think I wrote it all in capitals. I really <laughs> miss you. And I had a little, like, voice note back and... Uh, you know, we we are really lucky that there are different ways of getting in touch with people, and mm. you know, sometimes people don't feel like chatting. They might just want to send a text. Sometimes people might just want to send a little voice note. Sometimes you send an email to people. I'm like, what? Well, just whatever. Just getting in touch. You know, staying in touch with my parents. Yeah. Everyone is, you know, regardless of what job we're doing. In a way, I think it's just staying in touch with people and making checking in. Mm. Making sure people are okay, whether they need anything. If we're able to help out in some small way, then trying to offer that was also not over stretching ourselves, you know? Definitely. It was really important. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to start the way I start every episode of this podcast. I'm going to ask you how did you first get interested in theatre? I love it, and also I love hearing different people's responses to this question. It's been really interesting what different people have said. Yeah, yeah, it's lush. Like, for me, my first memory of theatre was going to Neath Little Theatre with my mum to see Theatre Gorllewy Morganog doing a play called Man a Man. Um, and, I, you know, I can remember the poster. I can remember Neath Little Theatre being very, like, woody. I can remember <laughs> being really woody. I can't remember exactly what was the what the play was about, but that image of the poster, and I know that Man on Eames was in it, Sarah Harris-Davis. Right. It was directed by Tim Baker. And I think as I've grown up and been working in the industry, I've, I've managed to work with... Uh, I think almost everyone who was part of that wow. production, or you know, the main cast and everything, which is nuts. It's like eighteen-year-olds. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I've worked with Manon Eames on uh, Gwath Captive and Public Come, 
Sarah Harris Davis, I wrote scenes that she was then acting in. Yeah. Tim Baker, I worked on the National Youth Theatre Wheels and then as an actor as well. And yeah, it's it's really cool just getting that I think it says a lot about Wales and yeah. especially like Welsh language theatre that those people are only a couple mm. of steps away. Yeah, absolutely. And like as a child and young person You've spoken about going to the theatre, but in terms of participation and performing, was that a big part of your childhood as well? Yeah, in a, in a roundabout way, really. So even though I didn't... I wasn't a part of many theatre productions, um, I did a lot in... You know, like most Welsh speakers, I did a lot of performing in the Eisteddfod with the Eiris, so I was always part of school choirs, uh, I used to do the Llevari. I had terrible trouble remembering my words, <laughs> which um, still happens, but there we go. Some things never change. Uh, I, do, I don't know if it, if it was like this when you were there, but when I was there in Eslabera, yeah. the Eisteddfod was like the thing, the most important yeah. thing. And if you yeah. didn't do anything in the Eisteddfod, you were pretty much naturally dead. But at least that's how I felt. Like, well, I was no good at sports, so like, Mr. Lord, just have to be my thing. But like, you know, I, I've always loved music. Um, you know, I, I learnt the violin when I was little. Stopped enjoying that after a bit and took up the clarinet and other instruments. Um, yeah. and so music was always my thing. So I've always had that performing thing. My, you know, my dad years and years ago was. I want to say a blue coat in Pontins. So my dad's wow. always been like an entertainer. He loves mm. he loves making people laugh. He really does. He's always been an entertainer. My mum is really musical, so we get our musical sort of skills from there. Um, and so they've always been mm. just ridiculously supportive. They they spent so many hours when we were little taking us to music lessons coming to school to pick us up after you know, choir rehearsals yeah. and drama rehearsals, all of that stuff. They they just did it. And it's only now I'm a parent <laughs> and I'm starting to take my kids to their drum lessons and trumpet lessons and all that that you realise the hours that they spent and the money they spent as well. You know, we we were never well off. We were very much a working class family. My dad was out working at the DVLA. My mum right. would be at home. You know, there were four of us at home. And we we never, we definitely weren't spoiled kids, but we never, ever went without, you know. Right. We, we had yeah. the musical instruments we needed and they worked damn hard to make sure we had them. So, I don't know, I just tried to, uh, without getting emotional and soppy about it, like, I just tried to be really grateful for that mm. in little ways. And when did you kind of begin to see it as something that you could have a career in? Well, definitely wasn't when the careers advisor told me that I should be a drama teacher. Uh, mm. I was, and then I remember going in and saying, I, I really enjoy performing. I think I want to be an actor. And her saying, oh, okay, so drama teacher. And like, there was there was just no, no, there was no real consideration there of what I'd said. So, you know, drama teacher is a perfectly valid job. It's not what I wanted to do. You know, she may as well have said, all oh, right, so you want to be an architect. I'm like, no, that, that's not what I said. Yeah. Um, so it was when I was 17, uh, I was doing more and more drama in school. I did drama for A-level, and after my first year of sixth form, I auditioned for the National Youth Theatre of Wales, right. and uh, I got put on the reserve list, which was uh, like, oh, 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 okay, well, that, that's not terrible. Okay. And then with a couple of weeks to go before the course, somebody dropped out. Yeah. I'm sorry to that person, but that's the best thing that happened. It was right. great. Because I got to be a member of the National Youth Theatre Wales. I managed to go away for a month uh, to West Wales and spend time with people. It was the first time I'd ever not been homesick, ever. Right. Uh, and like had a, a bad tummy and had to go home. Uh, I just got to spend time with like, like-minded people 
but people who are really different to me mm. as well. Um, we put together a production called Ubu Roi by Alfred Jarry, so that we did two versions. There was an English version and a Welsh version. Right. Uh, different productions, but every all members were in both productions. Uh, Menard Price directed that, and then Jamie Garvin, who was a lecturer at Welsh College, he was directing the English language version. And uh, I, re- I remember I spoke to Menard fairly recently and I remember her saying she she championed me and I remember her saying at the audition he he needs a chance he does and like to hear that is really really humbling mm. um, just to know that somebody went I can see something there and gave you a chance that's absolutely mm. lush so yeah it was after that I came back to school for upper sixth and had an amazing time. We yeah, we performed at the Sherman Theatre. So that was kind of my first right. even though it wasn't a professional paid theatre job, that was my first experience of what felt very much like professional theatre with professional expectations and everything. That, so it, yeah. It's like the stakes are raised slightly yeah. rather than performing in the school hall or yeah. theatre or, or whatever. It's just a step up. And did, yeah. did you feel that pressure? Massive, yeah, yeah. You know, it was uh, positive, constructive pressure to to be a professional in this production. You know, it was there were mm. what forty five of us actors in this production, uh, fifteen <sighs> stage crew as well. All you know, all of us young people under twenty one um, performing at the Sherman a week after Princess Diana had died. But, you know, that was quite a weird time as well um, and yeah that, that tells you how old I am now and, <laughs> and then yeah I went back to school and I remember people asking me what's happened to you and I was like I don't know what you mean and they just they noticed something and I know now looking back that it was a different kind of confidence right. that I'd found a certain confidence through being around these awesome people and being a bit more myself, I guess, that I came back mm. to school renewed and ready. And it, it was the National Youth Theatre that's of Wales. That's who, that's where I realised you you can be a performer, you can be an actor. That can that's a viable mm. career. Uh, and it was after that that I, is when I yeah I, I decided I want to audition for Welsh College of Music and Drama. I, I want to move on to that now. If if we can. So what was your time at work College like and how did it develop you as a performer, as an actor? Yeah, um, well I auditioned for the Welsh College when I was, I, some people call it Royal Welsh and I'm like, no, that's the agricultural show. Love. But, uh, so I, I was Is it not Royal Welsh? Well. Well. I, 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 I don't know this thing. <laughs> like, when I was there, they, they introduced the word Royal. It was just when we were going to do our showcase in London. So the designers did this amazing job of painting the word royal on the big banners that we use. Uh, but when I hear royal Welsh, I just think cows and sheep. Um, yeah. wells. Mm. So like, yeah, well, um, I auditioned for that and uh, when I was at school and I didn't get in because I, I just wasn't ready. I definitely wasn't ready. Right. Uh, so I went to do a drama degree in Aberystwyth first. Right. Uh, which is where I met a bunch of lifelong friends I had an epic time, wrote some essays, apparently, uh, read some of the plays I was supposed to write essays about. Oh, I was terrible. I was just a, a lazy student who fluked my way through. It was very last minute. Again, sometimes right. dodging. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I had a great time. And then it was at the end of that that I went, I felt ready. It was coming up to graduation from Aberystwyth auditioned for Welsh College for their postgrad course and fortunately got in um, and I just feel really lucky so I was one of the 12 people on our course doing the postgrad again it was it's such focused um, acting training and it's it's about what's good about Welsh College is it was the acting training as well as industry training right so yeah, it was more than just how to be, how to 
create a character when you've got the job. It was about how to get the jobs, how to go into an audition and not act like a knobhead, and how to you know, how to how to send a, a letter or an email, which is going to get people's attention in a positive way, and and um, kind of eliminating arrogance. I'd right. say part of it as well. Yeah, it was great. I had a really good time. I don't think I made the most of it. Because as the wonderful tutor Catherine Floyd's told me, I'll enter them in short, but you would have got a labyrinth with you only to you. I don't think you've left Aberystwyth behind you. And again, at the time, I was like, what do you mean? I don't care. Right. And now I realise, oh, I was, you know, I was going out, having a lovely time. Yeah. It was my first time in the big city. I was in yeah. Cardiff. Uh, I was out and proud for the first time, so going out, exploring the bars and stuff, and then, oh yeah, I've got to go into college now and learn. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I had a good time, it was a really good time, I learned a lot, could I have been more focused? Yeah, Um, but it it did give me a good standing. I really, do you know what, so this is the one thing I wish about Welsh College first years, second years and third years get to do an EYA, an end of year assessment. Right. They might have changed the name by now, but it, they got to like write and perform their own piece at the end of the year as an assessment, and we never got to do that. And I'm always really gutted because I'm fascinated to know what I would have done when I was 22, because yeah. it took me such a while to get started with writing. I wish I'd started sooner um, I want, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that next, actually, like, how did you start writing, and like, when did you begin to see yourself as a writer, and are, are those, like, two different things? Sort of, but no, no, they're so interlinked that, like, seeing yourself as a writer, I see lots of people put on the, you know, put aspiring writer, and I'm like, no, get rid of that, first, that's my first tip. If anybody like wants to be a writer, get rid of the word aspiring. If you're an actor, get rid of the word aspiring actor. Just, you know, you're doing it. If you are looking actively looking for work as an actor, you're an actor. If you are writing any sort of material, you're not an aspiring writer, you're a writer. Don't wait until you've had the first commission or anything to call yourself a writer. Mm. Just do it, be determined. Because, yeah, it took me a while. A long time, actually, because I was, I'd graduated from Welsh College, I'd worked, I'd had a really good solid year of acting work after graduating, um, really lucky, I did some TV, did a bit of theatre, did, oh, 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 I did a really terrible careers piece, uh, like a piece of theatre and education, which was, <laughs> oh my god, it was destroying, uh, and I've done some very good theatre and education since. But this was a really bad example of it. Right. You know, the really stereotypically, when people take the mick out of theatre and education, that was it. Career, going in to talk about careers to 16-year-olds performing a show based on a space station. Like, it's not the way. Who it's is, not going to work. Who is it with? Who um, was it? It was with a, a theatre company based in South Wales. I mean, I don't know if they exist anymore. Okay. But, <laughs> about it, fed up the moaning about it, and I went, I need to do something about that, 
if I've got these big ideas yeah. about how bad things are, I've got to see if I can do any better. Put your money where your mouth is. So that's sort of what I did, and I just started scribbling ideas, monologues, mm. bits and pieces. Um, I sent some ideas to a TV producer who I'd worked with called Lorna Llewellyn Davis. She then, so she was working with Taledi Apollo at the time. She said, well, she said, I'm going to come in, have a meeting, we'll have a chat. And um, weirdly, it led to being commissioned to write two episodes of a comedy series that I loved called Taledi Eddie. Wow. So, um, one John playing all his different characters with mick takes of, um, and send-ups of different TV shows. So I wrote an X-Factor send-up called O-Factor and <gasps> a Celebrity Fit Club one called oh. Club Bollyog. Yeah. <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Like you make it... You make... Like, making that connection and finding those people... Sounds very easy. Was it as simple as you're making out? So, um, I I hear a lot of these stories and I'm, I'm like, oh, I can hear myself. And I say, it does, you're right, it does sound easy. But in between, in between all that is like the tough slog is creating stuff. Uh, sometimes creating stuff in your spare time, in inverted commas. I think it's about using every opportunity to your advantage and never being afraid to ask for things. You know, as long as you ask nicely and ask politely. You know, I sent that email to Lorna and she could have ignored it. She could have said, oh, we're really busy right now. Um, But luckily, you know, she gave me an opportunity. So I did some TV writing before I'd ever done any theatre writing. Um, I'm just a great believer in knocking on those doors. Right. I think during that time after graduating, I sent lots of letters. So I spent a lot of time writing letters to people saying, hi, you know, I've seen your work. It's really good. Yeah. Sometimes that was a lie. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean that. I mean, totally. <laughs> I don't lie anymore. And I think anybody who knows me, and people who maybe follow my social media accounts know that I don't lie about those things anymore. I, right. I'm a great believer in if you've really enjoyed something, tell the world. If you've not enjoyed something, you know, you can just shut up. Uh, you don't have to share that. If something has absolutely offended your very soul, find a way mm. to speak up, which is somehow constructive and says what needs to be said in a you know a positive way um but yeah yeah that can be i've yeah i've had a few instances where that has been you know difficult to speak up but after i've done it it's been positive um yeah yeah i know what you're saying i'm gonna move on um slightly um i want to ask you about your process what is your writing process like and does it differ depending on what you're working on it's terrible (laughs) 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 i I hear people being like oh well i start by doing this and i like i like to go away on a retreat i like to go off to the coast and sit on a retreat and Uh, i'm like really so are you saying playwrights I've had on this podcast? Damn, these no. Parry are bullshitting. Is that your claim? Other podcasts, other podcasts, that's what I was saying. It's like, oh, everyone's got their way. I don't know whether mine is more chaotic or whether it's just less organised or less right. well-organised. But I'm very much like, oh my God, I need to get this. Honestly, it's... It's terrifying. I've identified what it is. The fear of getting it wrong often stops me getting anything done. Right. And uh, I don't recommend that to anyone. Uh, but that that's what it is. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, social media is a massive hindrance for me. Because I'm like, oh, you know, I've just... 
what do people call it? Death, is it death scrolling or do, doom scrolling? I think it yes. is. Are you just scrolling through things? And I'm like, oh yeah, but are you, you, your brain switches off and I've got to get myself to a place where I go, stop it, put mm. it down, sit down, do the work and then maybe go back to that in a bit but get a page or two done. So... Um, it's really so. I'm currently working on a, a, a sitcom pilot, and right. I'm working with Sarah Breeze and Dan Thomas, who run a company called Beastly Media. Now they're brilliant because they they've worked in comedy for years. They really know what they're doing, and we had a meeting, bit like that. We had a Zoom meeting the other day, and Sarah Breeze, how dare she? Said to me, I'm like from reading this like this draft, I get the impression that you like sort of build up and then like spew it all out into a draft to, to discover how the characters speak. And I was like, how dare you know me so well? <laughs> I felt seen. I was like, has she been watching? That is like exactly it. I'm like, so if I'm writing a play, then I will definitely spew out stuff. I'll try not to overthink stuff. Right. Just write monologues, write stories you know, get into the head of that character, write stuff, um, which might not all be relevant, it might not all be yeah. in the end product, that doesn't matter. You've gotta you've gotta get something down because without writing all the crap, you won't find those little nuggets of brilliance. Um Yeah. yeah. Is it easier when you're writing a Connie show? Because you know the character. I think with Connie's stuff, so writing like standard material compared to a play, I think you can sort of spill more stuff out with standard material it, because... Is there a structure to a Connie Off show or is it just stand-up? Yeah, it... definitely. There's, there's a structure because um, your, your standard material still has to have a story to it, it still has to have a, a structure. I think in a play, everything has to be pretty focused on driving the story forward. And it has to have quite a focused story that, you know, in, in certain types of plays, not all plays are going to do the same thing, but in, yeah, with a play, you're focused on your characters. I think before you sit down to write the dialogue, you have to know who your characters are. You've got to know where your story's going. You've got to really build those foundations. Uh, and I sometimes spend so long building those foundations, thinking, do I know this character? I'll, I'll just write a bit mm. more about them and draw in, draw in a big sort of uh, mind map, sort of character map of things they've done, where they're from, things that have affected them. Because we're all, we're all, you know, best characters are really complex and we are all really mm. complex so I think doing that is really important build the structure there's no point just sitting down to write a scene because it's like putting a roof on a house without having built the house like you won't get the house yeah. yet so there's no point getting your sofa um, if you haven't built the house yet <laughs> like yeah. don't furnish it because you're doing it without any structure without any foundations so definitely always build the foundations. Whereas with a Connie show, I'm just kind of sharing my thoughts on the world. Um, yeah, sharing thoughts, sharing opinions, thought out opinions, of course, because um, as, as a drag queen, I think a lot of people think of drag performance as, especially like the old style drag queens, of, of just maybe people being offensive and drag isn't that at all drag is people being unafraid right. drag is people like sticking up two fingers to society to norms to the the patriarchy who expect men to dress as men should and behave as men should and i think like connie and me getting into drag is such a <laughs> like it's what sh I should have done years ago. It's what I should have done years ago. So go, do you know what? I don't care if this casting person thinks I'm too camp to play that part. I don't care if this person thinks 
this. If I get into drag, um, I can say those things. I can behave this yeah. way and weirdly be a bit less judged, I think. Was it, was it a really freeing experience the first time you did it? Or were you incredibly nervous? Both of those things are true. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It was... Oh my god! What so? What I did? I um I was in the middle of writing a play called Tuck, which is all about the world of drag and yeah. people who live in that world. And um, I thought, well, if I'm gonna do this, if I'm gonna write this with any level of authenticity, I feel I want to do it and just feel it. Um, so I went to do a ten week course called The Art of Drag. Uh, so that involved getting on the National Express, and the bus services are available. Uh, going to London. <laughs> once a week, um, spend a little afternoon sort of mooching about, doing a bit of writing, going and doing the course at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, uh, and then coming back, and then like getting up to do the school run the next day. Um, and yeah, the end of that 10 weeks was a, a showcase where all the people on it got to do 10 minutes of right. performance, whatever we wanted to do, what it, as long as it, so we were mentored through the course, to have a solid ten, you know, six to ten minute performance, um, and we were mentored by Michael Twaits, who is like when the, he, he presents Pride in London. There's a lot of cabaret stuff on the London drag cabaret scene. He's just brilliant and knowledgeable and kind and and very empowering as well. Yeah. So it, you you had twelve people all doing different kinds of things different people of different genders, different ages. We were all wanting to do different kinds of drag. So that for me was great because, it, you know, I'd seen a lot of drag queens performing. You know, we had a drag, at least one drag king there. There were people identifying as females, getting into female drag. It yeah. was it was just a really good mix. Um, and so, yeah, I did that. And on, the, on November the something... Um, 2017, I got into drag for the first time and performed my 10 minutes of stand-up as Connie. It was terrifying. However, again, it's up there with, you know, National Youth Theatre, meeting my husband and adoption as, like, the best things yeah. I've done. Because I, I honestly, I went along for that first week thinking... Uh, I'm just going to go and learn. I'm not going to do the showcase. I'm going to go and learn, and that'll be it. And then I come home, and ended up doing the showcase. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it's been a springboard to do so many things. Like, yeah. What was was your what are Connie's future plans then? Um. Right. So it's to Isla Vile and sort of re-grab the. The, the reins kind of thing on this weird yeah. sled I'm driving. I sound like I'm like Sean Connery or something. Uh, she, <laughs> it, weirdly, I, I sort of feel like I'd built up some potential with Connie, so I'd managed to, you know, do my own solo shows at the Millennium Centre. Like, yeah. <laughs> Just to, you know, I was in there discussing programming tech and I said, oh, I've got my showcase next week. And again, it's those opportunities being offered to you and mm. um, Sarah, who is, um, you know, she's doing brilliant stuff at the Millennium Centre, um, said, well, would you like, a, you know, do you want to do a slot here in Fresh? And in that instant, right. I knew I could either say no, thanks, or I could grasp it and just say yes. And I'm really glad I did. Because, you know, I performed my own solo show at the Millennium Centre, sold out... Um, wow. and, and, yeah, that must beautiful. have been an incredible feeling. Like, oh, honestly, I was on top of the world. As I shared, I shared with people at the end of that show on that night. I said that afternoon I had so many doubts. Uh, I'd had a cry. Uh, the nerves were not too much because I knew I'm doing it now. Because people yeah, yeah, take yeah. it. <laughs> they're going to be it. It's happening um, regardless. So yeah, you've got to do it. It was that kind of thing. And you can't back out now. Can't back out now. Exactly. You, I just couldn't. That was it. And and I'm really glad I didn't because I, 
performed and nobody died. So um, I think that's like... <laughs> yeah. But then right now, was, look, I said some words, I sang some songs, nobody died. It's a winner. Let's yeah. do another one. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um... Like to, to do, just to do more. Um, I'd love to perform a bit more at the Golden Cross because... Mm. That's like one of the homes of Welsh drag. It's it's just a gorgeous place who have kept the LGBTQ community going through lockdown. They've been amazing. I'm going to get back there. I'm going to get back in the Millennium Centre. I'm going to carry on. I'd started a little tour of Wales. I've managed to perform in Pontadawe, um, Theatre Cloyd, Llanelli, and like, oh, I just want to get back to the funness. Yeah. I've been, yeah get back on the road anyway fantastic I'm going to move on slightly because we've got a lot to get through and I want to get yeah. to end. but I want to talk about a good clean heart um would you did you write it for the other room in 2050 yeah pretty yeah it was um so I started developing it as a uh, a 10 minute play I saw that in Vertigo Theatre back in like 2014, so in Vertigo, were a mix of um, some guys who had met uh, at drama school, I think they met, in London. There were some Welsh guys, Stefan Donnelly was there, Sean Allen Davis, and they put out a call for 10-minute plays with an English character and a Welsh character. Right. And I just thought, okay, I want to put something in for this. How can I create something which isn't just two people on a park bench sort of thing? Um, and I, th- we were going through the adoption process at the moment, at the time, and I thought, what, what if these were siblings who had somehow been separated? I was watching a lot of um, uh, Long Lost Family on ITV. Right. As I was learning about the adoption process, I was watching Long Lost Family, going, "That's not what it's like right now." The reality is very different now. It's not, you know, kids being snatched away for no good reason. It's very different. And so what if they were two siblings who'd gone through that in this day and age, you know, at least very recently, and them meeting back up kind of thing. And so that's where it kind of came from. Mm. that One sibling had been adopted from London to West Wales, grown up a Welsh speaker and what if they were suddenly told that they weren't born Welsh that they were actually born English and what does that do you know what does that do to someone's identity you know if somebody who was grown grown up English was told they were Welsh or born Welsh perhaps that wouldn't have an impact but Welsh identity is a really different Mm. thing um and so yeah i just wanted to explore that we wrote 10 minutes that got performed at the pleasance over in islington um i enjoyed seeing it uh again nobody died so that was good was that per- uh, performed uh, by Linguli in london in so the, like the first version was performed all in english right um and and then we yeah when i sent that version over to kate wasserberg who at the time was set in, just in the process of setting up the other room. Um, so part of it was me going, hi, somebody who is a director who's worked with uh, on a lot of new writing, who I really trust, who I hope will respond. Yes. Um, and and also, you know, it's just knocking on that door and going, you're setting up a pub theatre. I think I can write things which would interest your audiences what about this? Yeah. Luckily, Kate got back and said, this is interesting, write some more, um, offered to support an Arts Council application um, for some funding to, to take that time to write because taking that time is so important. You know, we mm. when, when we're busy living life, when we're busy paying our bills, I find it really difficult to then find the time to write as well. Oh, maybe because I'm 40 by now, and it's, it's like, oh, the pressures are on. But yeah, so the, eventually the other room said, we want to commission this as a play. We want this to yeah. be our first piece of new writing in the other room. 
Like, like we've spoken about pressure in your arms, but like, I guess that's a different sort of pressure. Oh my god, you know, because... That's this, another level of pressure. This is a brand new theatre just being established. They had like Sarah Kane, Sarah Kane's piece was the first in the series. Then it was another <gasps> amazing piece, and I can't remember the name of the playwright. Oh, that's sure this. And... <laughs> And then it was my piece. There were supposed to be four pieces in that season, yeah. but funding was so tight for them that they had to make it three. And so my play was brought forward by three months. Uh, the director I'd been working with suddenly wasn't able to work on it anymore because they were having a child. Oh, uh, and the timing just coincided really badly um, with like the actual birth so, you know, Marit Swain was brought in, who I'd known for, well, since National Youth Theatre in 1998. So me and Marit already had a really good, like, working dynamic. Was this pre or post or during Neontopia? So there's a pre-Neontopia, yeah. So working on uh, Good Clean Heart for the Other Room was basically us checking out, can we work together like this? Is this yeah. a positive experience um you know we got it together we put it on Marred was fair and um honest and fright is the welsh word was that like oh um, yeah. just like bring it up front with her yeah. feedback and everything like honestly i think everyone should have married swain in their life That's <laughs> what I mean. just as a friend but also as a dramaturg because when people say what's a dramaturg it's a married swain, right? It's somebody right. who will not tell you what to write, but will ask you the best, um, like, most constructive, positive questions. Mm. Or, what if it was this? What if it was that? What are you trying to say? I think every playwright needs someone like that. And I haven't found that person yet. I found people who will give me feedback, and which is decent feedback, but they won't. Kind of asked the question. No offense to anyone who's currently reading my play, <laughs> but like they haven't asked those questions, which has made me go, "Oh shit, that needs massive upheaval." Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I've heard, you know, in conversations with Mara, she said, "Oh, sometimes playwrights don't make the best dramatics because they will look at something they're reading and go, okay, how would I write that?'" So I, I work against that. I go with Marit's advice. And if ever people ask me to read their work, I try just to ask the positive questions. It's never yeah. like, this isn't right or that isn't right. It's about, what are you trying to say? If you're saying this, then you need to say more of that. If you're saying something else, that's not yet clear and you need to focus on that. Mm. Um, you know, is this... Yeah, just asking those positive questions, constructive questions, which aren't yes or no, but which allow a playwright to go to to play, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got that on. We put it on. We yeah. we saw it. People had a nice time. You know, it was it was Kate Wasserberg's idea early on, by the way, to to produce it bilingually. So it was Kate who said, what if you wrote it in Welsh and English? Rather than back-to-back English Welsh. Yeah, and that was like fireworks going off in my head, like really, really yeah. good fireworks. Because in the back of my mind, that was sort of, I think, what I would have liked to have done all along, but was maybe too scared to ask to do it. I don't know. I, the, the, only ever, the only other bilingual piece I'd ever seen that I can remember was Gary Owen play called Amgen Broken. I've heard of that. I haven't oh, read it. Great. But... It was a really interesting piece. I saw it at the Sherman and it was like two it was something like two versions of the same character. One right. who spoke Welsh and one who didn't. And yeah, yeah, it was great. That that inspired me to go, okay, that's possible. We can do this. Um, and make something different with it. And so it was all about, mm. you know, writing in two languages is a, a mind-blower. 
I can imagine, but, yeah, but... But it's great, too, mm. because it's it's also really freeing. Here's some advice. Uh, if you're going to write bilingually, you need your director or person who's reading the play to speak both languages. It's yeah. it's really, really hard being a player. And I've had this experience a couple of times, and I don't think anybody who hears this will disagree or will think I'm wrong to say it. When you are writing a script in two languages and the person you're working with to help develop it only speaks one, as a writer, you end up having to do double the work. Yeah, could you explain uh, everything? Oh, I can imagine that. Thank you. Yeah. That's a tough tip. I will definitely bear that in mind. Yeah, and, and don't be afraid to say it. I've, it's taken me a long time, but by now, I know that I need those notes to come on the draft that I'm writing. You know, this section is in English, mm. that section's in Welsh, blah, blah, blah. This bit jumps back and forth. You, you need to be able to let that play flow out to you in those languages yeah. and it be read in that context because the minute you get into it, right, I've written the play, oh my God, I've got to go back and translate. Because it's I mean, not just about translation, is it? It's about exactly. key destin, uh, yeah. um references, um, Luciano, Hevis. Yeah. It's yeah, so... you know, I, I get to the point where I want to send a play out to someone, you know, outside Wales, yeah. or even inside Wales, to people who don't speak Welsh, and you have to sort of put the context or translation of the phrase or whatever yeah. in brackets, and you're like, oh, that cuts across the flow of it, and yeah, it's tricky, but oh my gosh, I just wish writing bilingually was the norm here. Yeah, I, I want to talk about writing or devising trilingually now, though, because you've been working with my lovely friend, Steph Back, on yeah. a piece called I Said I Love You. Can you talk a little bit about the piece and what the process has Yeah, been like? so first I'm going to save myself a little bit of breath, especially as an asthmatic, because uh, we, we've now change after not after much discussion but after a little thought and all going oh yeah this makes sense i said i love you is now called fow so yeah fow is um not an english word or a welsh word it's a sign um and it's a it's a phrase used to mean something that goes over it's gone over your head so if something's gone over your head the sign kind of goes fow um and that I don't know much BSL, which makes me quite the pretender on this project. Right. And always, <clears throat> it's a bit like seeing somebody saying, oh, I'm writing a play in Welsh. And you go, all right, do you speak Welsh? And they go, no. certain feelings in me. So I can only imagine how people in the BSL and deaf community feel about me writing a play in English, Welsh and BSL. So, I mean, at this point, what we're doing is going, I speak two of those languages, or I use two of those languages fluently. The third, I need a lot of help on, and I'm more than willing to accept that help. So finding, you know, playwrights who use all three of those languages is tricky. I mean, guaranteed there'll be someone who'll go, well, I could, it could have been me. And I, I'm going to say, I thought, cool, let's do the next one. Do the next one. Yeah, I, I'm not going to criticise you because you're not a deaf player. I, even yeah. though I've got a bit of a track record about crying at people's ableism. But, you know, <laughs> um, I think what you're doing with Steph and Elise, um, like, how has COVID affected like, what you've been doing in your process? So, like, luckily, I think the positive thing is we, this whole production and the development of it has been a massive, massive skill-sharing exercise. Right. Like, skill-sharing, experience-sharing, you know, I've gone in there, definitely not, you know, as you say, the the ableism, I'm one to wave my flag and go, I'm just a, a stupid hearing person. I want to know as much as I can. I want to learn as much as I can about your life experiences and make sure that anything I create around that 
is passed through that sort of filter which filters out any of my stupidity or naivety. What I can bring is my experiences as a Welsh speaker who had been through people, uh, you know, putting me down for 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 being bilingual. Yeah. That sounds so backwards, isn't it? Isn't it? Right. Um, but it happens. Um, but yeah, that experience of being Welsh and being Welsh outside Wales, especially where people go, "Oh, you're Welsh, are you?" And that it, hmm. Being from a minority community, I'm from yeah. a couple of different minority communities, and trying to use that in an in the most empathetic way to go right. Okay, there's a lot of stuff we've got to learn about each other. So between Elise Davison, she's been leading on the well, it's not I tell like Steph has been leading on the project with Elise and with me and with lots of other brilliant collaborators too. Right. <clears throat> you know, we've had tens of different BSL interpreters in the room who've been vital to not just communication in the rooms for development and rehearsals, <clears throat> excuse me, but they've all been able to bring all their different perspectives on it as well, um, whether they are people who've learned BSL, who are from um, families with deaf members, yeah. all different experiences and, you know, Steph's experiences as a deaf person have been the lead on this project. So that's why when I'm creating mm. it, um, I'm writing in, writing, how many languages am I writing it? <laughs> Three. Three. In, English, Welsh and BSL. That's oh, it. I'm like writing, mad. making sure that I'm writing in a syntax which is unfamiliar with me in order to get the most authentic, uh, genuine, heartfelt performance from Steph, who is the BSL user amongst mm. us all. Um, so, how has the process been? Joyful, like ridiculously mm. joyful ridiculously educational um as i said because we hit covid this has gone now from being a performance we could put on in theaters which would have been done a certain way which have been produced a certain way yeah. directed a certain way we have taken the decision to take it online okay you know the, the there are large groups of people who are at risk now even if theaters were to open tomorrow lots of people are still at risk yeah and, you know, a lot of the audiences we want to get for this piece are people who are more at risk than others. And we don't want to put those people at risk. No, of so course. we want to make this an accessible, exciting, interesting piece. Make it as fun as possible. Um, Fau is a love story, is the yeah. thing. It's not a story about deafness or a story about Welshness. Or, it's... It's a love story with um, with speed bumps. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. How, <laughs> how can people work it and when are people going to be able to see it? So if you follow Deaf and Fabulous Productions, have a look out for Deaf and Fabulous Productions. Um, they're really good at just keeping everyone updated. It's being produced in collaboration. I think I'm allowed to say this. I, th I think I am. Um, with Theatre Sirgar right. and with uh, the Miners' Welfare in Astrakhan Life. Like, they've been really supportive. In fairness, whenever we've shared information about this production and like little snippets of it, so many companies have been really interested. They've been excited about it. They've like offered support, whether that's offering space or yeah. they've just been really interested in it, and that's brilliant. You know, it's not people going, "Oh, I don't think we've got the audience for that." So many programmers, even during this really horrendous time where they, there's no certainty for all these buildings and companies, Fantastic. they've just lent their support, and it shows to me that that community out there, the theatrical community and the arts community. They're there for each other. They yeah. they want to do things. I think it's really difficult at times where some of us feel that it's cliquey. Uh, yeah. And I know that I, I felt different things are cliquey and 
just because I haven't found the, the Welsh theatrical community. It doesn't mean it. Not, it's not. It yeah. just I've found yeah. a way into that thing, and I see part of my responsibility as somebody who is in that thing to help other people into it and just say, "Come on, this is, this is all right. There's nice people here, and you know there are there are idiots in any any community." But I've met most I think, people. like overall, it's a very supportive, welcoming community. Uh, so the last thing I want to ask you, Alan, is what advice would you give to someone who's just starting off in the industry? Particularly perhaps maybe a young writer like myself. Uh, there are so many things I want to say write stuff just write stuff and send it to people I really wish that I'd uh, started writing stuff sooner I know that when I was in Aberystwyth at uni there was um, a writing module and I didn't take it why didn't I take that? (laughs) weirdly there were only I think there were six of us who were studying drama and Gymnaig in Aberystwyth uh, and nobody else was doing that writing module, so I kind of went with the flow on that. And writing hadn't, writing had never seemed like something I could do. I don't feel like I was right. ever enabled to do that, if that's the word, no, or empowered. Nobody ever said, you should try writing before. Did you really know that playwright was a job or a thing? Oh, Certainly not. Certainly not. You know, if that um, careers advisor told me when I said, I want to be an actor, and she said, oh, be a drama teacher, like, certainly nobody had said, you can write plays and TV and radio plays and, uh, you know, commercials and all sorts of stuff, and, and you can make a career out of that if that's what you really want to do. Yeah, so I wish I'd started sooner and started experimenting a bit more with writing and what writing was and really studying plays and going, okay, what's good about that? Um, So read plays, read plays that you love, break them down, read plays you don't love and work out what is it you don't like about it. Is it the style? Is it the content? Is there something about that style that you can learn from? Um, is yeah, uh, write to people. I mean, I would normally say, under normal circumstances, go and watch as much theatre as you possibly can. Mm. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, I miss going to the theatre so, so much. much. So, so much. Like, when they reopen, I'm just gonna try and go see everything. Like, literally oh everything. <laughs> I told my kids, kids, I love you so much, but when we are allowed back out, you won't see this for something. I'll be gone. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did actually go to London about a year and a half, two years ago. I went to see The Inheritance. Was it um, good? Was it good? Oh, who would have thought that sitting in the theatre for three and a half to four hours at a time, twice in one day, would be so amazing. But it was yeah. moving, it was life-changing, it was brilliant. It was such a theatrical experience. Um, so I'd say, you know, yeah, go and see theatre. We can't do that right now. So read plays. Um, do what you can. If you can find... Because I know money, like it or not, is a barrier. Not all of us can afford to buy brand new plays some of them they cost mm. like 10 pound a pop there are places selling plays a lot cheaper than that um i have some plays please all right if you're stuck if you think i really want to read some plays but i can't afford to buy them get in touch with me i've got piles of books here i've got plays that i have read and my husband really wants me to declutter i need to get <laughs> I can afford an envelope and to send some plays out to people, even if it's just one or two to a few people. My name is Alan Saunders. I've got something to say. Get in touch with Twitter or whatever and ask, and I'll send you stuff. It's fine. Thank you so much for your time, Alan. It's been fab talking to you. Please, and knock on doors. Knock on doors. That's my message. (laughs) Ask people for things. The worst thing they can do is not reply. That's all I'm saying. Thanks for doing this podcast. Thanks for coming on.
Um, that's it for this week's episode of In Lockdown With. My guest on the next episode, or next week's episode, is Emily Nicole Roberts, who is a blogger, an online content creator, YouTuber, so it's a little bit different, and she has cerebral palsy. So I will uh, catch you then, but for now it's bye from me and bye from Alan. Bye, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.